Hello and welcome to this week's Tez Effie podcast. My name's Kate Parker and I'm joined by Julie Balgatai. This week, some of you will still be on your holidays. Some of you will be back at college already for the start of a new term. And um, we started off the week with kind of an an influx of um, research findings from the latest Association of Colleges survey, um, which pretty much, I think, confirmed what we knew already, didn't it, Julia? Yeah, so, I mean, we've all known that although colleges really tried very hard to offer an awful lot of uh, blended learning and also remote learning to students, that it was very likely that a number of students weren't going to be quite where they would have been otherwise if if lockdown hadn't happened. You know, a variety of reasons, some of them quite logical. You know, if you're training to be a hairdresser, say, there will inevitably be skills that you won't have practised in the way you would have if you'd been in college every day. Digital poverty also continues to be an issue. Um, and I was lucky enough to speak to David Hughes about this uh, just a couple of days ago, and here's what he had to say. So David, the AOC published a big report this week on catch-up funding in colleges and remote learning. What were the main findings that you take away from that? Well, what we did is we surveyed all of our members and we got back some really fantastic intelligence about what's been going on in colleges. And we all know, I suppose, just instinctively that young people and adults will have found it difficult through the last 12, 13 months and that their learning has been disrupted, that even the best online learning sometimes doesn't make up for a kind of a more blended approach. And that for some people, their learning online is just either impossible or very difficult, you know, impossible to learn how to, I don't know, use a chainsaw online, for instance, um, or cut hair, which might be a more important one at the moment. So, um, and the digital poverty bit really has impacted on lots of students' ability to learn at home, nothing to do with the quality of the online learning materials. So we found that about three quarters of students, both young and adults, were somewhere between one and four months behind where they expect to be at this time of the year, you know. And as I said, it's not really a surprise, but what it does is it presents a massive challenge to the whole education system. And that really there are two groups we should be worried about. It's the groups who will continue to be learning in September, you know, so that's new entrants to college, people doing their second or third year. And what do we do for that group? And the other group is the people leaving this summer who probably aren't as prepared as they would have been for the labour market. Do you mention the digital poverty bit there? What were your findings on that? Because obviously the assumption is that the DfE has provided thousands and thousands of laptops and dongles and all sorts of other equipment, but your report was showing that there were still gaps. Yeah, the the, the government's um, uh, support for colleges to provide those uh, devices was really, really good. It came quite late. You know, it didn't really happen until sort of February, March this year. Um, and you might have seen on social media colleges with literally thousands of, of, of boxes arriving. That's brilliant. What we know, though, was that it was aimed at 16 to 18 year olds, not adults. And adult digital poverty is just as bad. And the colleges in our survey were saying about there's still about a third of of, um, lessons needed. You know, so there is still a big issue. One of the things we're trying to do is to get the government to take seriously an ongoing commitment to providing digital devices for students who just can't afford themselves to have those. And, you know, that could be a really, really important part of building back better rather than just kind of going back to the old ways. And it isn't just about laptops, is it? It's also about internet connectivity and 
all sorts of wider issues around that. Yeah, I think that's right. The, the laptops is one thing, and the sort of dongles, you know, for for um, uh, for connection is is important. I mean, the, the other thing that's more difficult to address, of course, is just having the space and a quiet space to be able to learn. You know, and I grew up in a family where I shared a bedroom throughout my uh, all the way through till late teens. Um, and you know, trying where do you do your homework? I used to do it on the kitchen table. You know, and um, loads of noise, loads of interruption, you know, that makes it much tougher than if you're in a more privileged position with a space, the choir, really good broadband access, etc. Your report also looked at tuition funding and any funding uh, that was coming from government to support catch up basically in, in a college setting. Has there been enough of that? Do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, look, I think the, it's around about 100 million and, and the same for next year. That That's really, really helpful. I mean, you'll, you might remember how hard it was to actually get that because when the announcement was first made, it included colleges, then suddenly it didn't include colleges yeah. and we had to fight quite hard to get that. So I don't want to underplay how important that is. And colleges are using it. We're trying to get some more flexibility around it because it, it, I think particularly for some college learners doing practical courses perhaps the individual tutor model isn't the right model always you know um, and it's definitely not enough I mean we, we we know that for proper education recovery our recommendations are let's extend the pupil premium there's no logic to it stopping at age 16 you know why that why would it not be sensible to continue it for 16 17 18 year olds um, put more hours in because we lag behind other OECD countries roughly 14 or 15 hours a week teaching in um, England's colleges and school sixth forms. It's probably 25 to 30 hours in many OECD countries, you know, so we want that to be addressed, you know, and overall, we think the, the, the funding rate is a long way behind where it needs to be. And things like enrichment have suffered, staff pay has suffered. And so we're saying, actually, you need to not forget that you started to address that government, you know, uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, carry on, please, in the spending review. So is that your main call for action now? Is it is it about funding? Yeah, I mean, and, and trust colleges to do the right thing by their learners. You know, what we don't, we were very, very sceptical about the notion of summer schools, for instance. You know, let's not go down that route. Let's not do, you know, Saturday mornings classes and stuff, unless that's what the college wants to do with a particular cohort because they think it will work best. You know, government needs, I think, more and more to trust colleges they've shown they want to deliver the best thing for their learners you know and we should give them the, the wherewithal the resources to be able to do that to the best of their efforts and you and i talk about this all the time the whole issue of the and colleges and obviously there's been plenty of talk about catch-up funding for schools and what what you know learning loss there has been in, in school settings is that part of the reasoning behind this report to sort of get the college side of this addressed yeah completely i mean there's there's always going to be more focus on school pupils i mean and you know, that's got, we've got to understand why that is. There are far more school pupils than college pupils overall, that more parents, more voters. It, we need to care about, you know, young people from the age of, you know, all, all the way through to 16. It's just really galling that it kind of stops at 16 unless you're in a, a school doing A-levels. And, you know, my job and our job is to keep pushing that. And, I mean, I, I, I think the and college has, hashtag has worked. You know, I, I now sometimes in meetings literally just put into the chat because most of them are online, hashtag and colleges and somebody will pick it up. I did it with the, um, the London Recovery Board of all places um, a, a few weeks ago where 
somebody was talking about how important education was and all she talked about was schools. So I literally just went into the um, uh, chat and said, hashtag and colleges and, and the mayor <laughs> uh, sort of picked it up and went, yeah, David Hughes is right. We shouldn't forget about colleges. They're really important, you know, and actually it breaks the ice a bit, you know, so it's, I regret that we have to do it, but I'm never going to stop. And great stuff from David, as always. He's a total pro when it comes to these things, isn't he? Yeah, um, <laughs> almost like he gets paid for it. Exactly. Um, and another uh, key story I think is worth highlighting. Um, I was lucky enough to meet the new chief executive of the Prisoners Education Trust earlier this week. He's only been in the job two weeks, so he is very, very new to it. Hasn't you were his first appointment, obviously. Yes, hasn't met any of his colleagues face to face yet. Um, but he obviously it's been a really really tough year for everyone in education but I would say especially for prison educators Um, you know just the nature of how things work there means that they don't have the digital infrastructure to offer remote learning Um, and you know they have really struggled there's been you know you hear stories about prisoners spending 23 hours a day in their cells and the only access to education they've got is kind of you know paper and pen workbooks um it's we i did um i'm sure you will have all read it a feature that i um that we did in the magazine a couple of weeks ago about the impact that it's had on students and also prison educators so in um the interview with me john talked about the need to um ensure that every prisoner has access to digital learning um it's it it's one of those things that comes obviously with a lot of work that needs to go around it the security that needs to be put in um all sorts of things but it's also infrastructure isn't it a lot of prisons aren't particularly brand new so you know be a lot of work that that would require yeah it is and you know some prisons um already have things like in-cell telephones um but uh, and and you know i spoke to people about how easily it is for teachers to call this to call students and kind of have that chat over the phone but the problem is is that you can only call those in cell telephones from within the prison itself and often in the education department there'll be one phone so i heard stories of you know teachers queuing up to speak to students and then when you do get the students on the phone because they've been in their cells for 23 hours a day they want to talk and talk and talk and talk about what's going on you know um so it's really it's really really complex picture um, it also but, requires people, you know, you don't really think about that, but it requires people to be in the education department, like you say, and most of us haven't gone into our workplaces, particularly during the strictest lockdown. So, you know, is that really, you know, what you want to see happening, that teachers have to be be there to make these calls? Exactly. And it's just, I think it just, re- it's always been an issue in terms of how accessible prison education is. And I think this past year has just really brought that to light, um, the complete lack of say backup there is for if in-person teaching can't happen so um yeah john was talking about the need for every prisoner to get access to digital learning and he also said that when new prisons were built or prisons were expanded that education should really be at the heart of those builds and those plans so here's a bit of a clip discussing that and in an ideal world you know if you say you had all the funding that you wanted would it be a situation you'd want to see every prisoner with say a smart device or a laptop in their cell is that is that like the end goal? Um, I'm not enough of an expert, I'd say, um, in how you deliver digital effectively in, into prison to, to be exactly sure about the right mode of delivery. But I certainly think it's essential that every prisoner has access to 
digital learning in a way that suits the educational work that they need to do. Um, whether that's every prisoner having digital access in every cell and every prison in the country, I don't know. I mean, that, that certainly on the face of it is superficially appealing. I can see the benefits to that. Um, but what I think from my point of view as a relative newcomer to this, to this specific area um, is that what you want to see is digital technology used to enable learners to access materials, support, feedback, assessment um, in a way that enables them to move forward. And I think that's why we need a proper strategy to, to roll out digital technology into prisons is because that's the place to look at what are we trying to achieve and what's the best way of achieving that in a way that works for learners but also works for, for, the, for the prison system. Um, uh, I'm confident there is, you know, there, 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 this is doable now in terms of, you do see some prisons that are much more advanced in terms of uh, that access to digital technology. I think we need to look at them and, and learn from what they're doing and consider how we can how we can spread that through the rest of the prison estate. But I do also recognise things like, you know, old Victorian prisons are much more difficult to, to wire up digital technology than modern um, you know, new build prisons they're building now. Um, so there are real challenges, but I don't think we've got a proper national sense of what those challenges are and therefore what the most workable solutions mm. are. And I think as a, as a sort of aside to that, um, the government is committed to, to building new prison places or, or to expanding the prison estate. Um, and if that is going to happen and if new, you know, new prison builds are going to take place, um, proper education provision should be at the heart of the plans for those new prisons. And that goes from proper classroom and other educational facilities in the prison, but also thinking about in-cell and distance learning and what technology um, and facilities need to be available to make that work. Um, if we're going to invest in new prison places, um, then the very least we can do is ensure that education and positive activities are really at the heart of those prisons. And we know a lot now about, you know, what, what a good prison or what good prisons might look like. Um, so within the limitations of a prison, and there are, you know, you're not building a school here, you are, Fred Arts, you are building a prison, making sure that education opportunities are really at the heart of of any prison, new prison build or any prison investment strategy is really important. Another story we think is really worth um, talking about was a brilliant interview that Julia did with um, Sam Ross, who is a general assistant at the City of Glasgow College. Julia, do you want to tell us a little bit about Sam's story? Yeah, so Sam has been working at the college for well over a decade. I think she said something like 12 or 13 years she's, she's been there now. Um, and Sam has Down syndrome and is one of, sadly, still very few uh, young people who went straight into the world of work and earns money in, you know, a job in a, in a cafe, in a college, sort of engaging with staff and students there day to day, absolutely loves her job. I mean, it's, I think it's fair to say I haven't spoken to anyone who loves their job this much in a long time. <laughs> it was really inspiring to see. And she obviously misses being in the cafe at the college. Um, greatly but we talked a great deal about what the sort of barriers might be to other young people with Down syndrome looking for work and getting into work and also finding their way around really big education institutions like like the college you know are there any ways that colleges could 
become more accessible, anything that colleges could do specifically to help young people with Down syndrome who either want to be students or, you know, work in the college in the way that Sam does. And so we've got a bit of a clip on what Sam had to say about that. I would give them a tour of the college. And I also, someone from the college could go into the schools, tell them about college life, show them a short video and a welcome package to the college. Yeah. Why do you like working at the college? What's good about it? Oh, I'll, I'll love it. I like it because I go to my, diff I meet different people. It makes me feel independent. Every Everyone knows me there, and I love customer service. I have been working there for 12 years, and I love my job. And lastly, I think it's important that we uh, talk about, I would say, the runaway success of our newest feature online, which is our Effie Heroes. Um, series that we will be publishing every Monday. Um, I think, you know, we just really wanted to, well, over the past year, the, the whole sector, the work that they've done, it, it's just been incredible. And the dedication we've seen is, you know, second to none. And I think we just really wanted to highlight those stories of people that maybe haven't um, really had their stories told before, been in the spotlight, but are kind of integral to the day-to-day -day running of a college, training provider, adult education provider, a prison education, you know, um, everybody really, no matter what level job they're at um, and no matter where they teach in FE, we really wanted an opportunity to share their stories. So we have come up with 10 questions, which we think um, kind of, you know, get, get to the nuts and bolts of what they do and allow them to really share some inspiring things. Um, and, yeah, I, and I think it's important as well, considering how wide the readership of TES is, you know, not everyone who reads TES works in an FE institution and lots of people in other parts of education might not be quite as aware of how diverse the sector is and, and the sort of roles that we see. So it's, you know, it's a great way to, in a lot of detail, share what some of these people do day to day that seems entirely normal to them, but is quite inspiring to everyone else around them. Yeah, and I, do you know what? I've been completely overwhelmed with messages and emails of people not only, you know, wanting to share their story, but wanting to nominate other people who they think are particularly inspiring. Um, and I promise if I haven't got back to you yet, I promise I will. And, <laughs> and don't will... stop writing in, by all means. Yeah, uh, yeah. Contact Kate or myself any way that you can, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, exactly. And our first one is already up online. You can see we put, we put, we decided that we're going to publish on the Monday as it's a nice, positive way to start the week, we think. So the, our first one was um, Lucy Harding, who is a lecturer in education at Hugh Bard College. And, you know, I think it was a brilliant first one to start with and a really, really good read. Um, and I would really recommend you all go and have a look and learn about Lucy's life. Great. And they will all be collated in uh, the Tears of uh, FE Heroes Hub, so you'll be able to. It's slightly empty still at the moment. It's uh, seeing as we've just published the one, but in a few weeks' time, that will start filling up with all these great stories, and you'll be able to look at that and share it with other people inside and outside of the sector. And hopefully, that will be a great resource for all of us to get some inspiration from. Yes, exactly. And as ever, thank you all for listening. And if you are, you know, coming to the end of your holidays, have a great weekend, try and get some rest before the start of a new term. And if you have already started back at college, then, you know, really good luck for the summer term. Um, and we hope that things are maybe a little bit smoother than they have been over the past 12 months or so for you. And we'll uh, be back with the next Debbie podcast in a fortnight's time. Bye.
We will be. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.